triple Holdegate. The double Holdegates, and we'll have a better picture of it, are back here. You can only see one now, and all of the gates have been filled in. But you would enter the temple by going through the triple gate here. You would come out onto the platform in this area where you see the trees. Uh, right in front of this mosque right here is a, uh, is a sort of a big, big hole in the temple platform where you would go down and you would come out and come down the steps and you would go on your way. Uh, right here you can see the, the mikvah baths. Mikvah is the Hebrew word for the baptistry. They were uh, single private baptistries where people would go in and uh, uh, ritually purify themselves. It is uh, probably right here in these, these baptistries right here, these mikvahs, that the 3,000 were baptized on the day of Pentecost. You have right here the Al-Aqsa Mosque, second largest mosque in the world. Here you have the Dome of the Rock. Here you have the Kidron Valley that comes down here. If you were to continue down this little peninsula of land as it comes down, you would come to the Hinnom Valley and the Tyropium or the, che the Cheesemaker uh, Valley is along this wall right here. The Fortress Antonia would have been up in this area right here. Uh, on our particular way of entering the temple, we came in through the Dung Gate. The Dung Gate is on the south side, and you would actually head down towards the Valley of the Hinnom with, uh, with all of the things that you wanted to throw away. This is, uh, this is a pan panoramic shot of, uh, of the, the temple uh, platform from across the Kidron Valley. Uh, this is the Kidron Valley down in here. This is, uh, this is the Golden Gate. There was a bridge that went across the Kidron Valley because during the times when there was water, there needed to be a way to, uh, to, to cross the, the valley when it was filled with water. So there was a bridge across there. Uh, today, uh, the, the Muslims are in control of the Temple Mount itself where Mount Moriah is, is located and the temple built on top of it. But the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, are the ones that protect it. And so um, there's, uh, there is a very, very strong Muslim um, uh, presence right up here on top, you, as you can well imagine from the, the mosque that is located here in this very holy place right here that we'll talk about in a couple of minutes. But one of the things that you'll see in front of the, the Golden Gate here, Golden Gate is where Jesus entered on that Sunday before he was crucified, where everyone recognized him as the Messiah and said, Hosanna and, and uh, the son of David and all. And they laid down the, uh, the, the, the palm branches and, and their cloaks as he went into the, uh, into the temple area that was up in here through that gate right there. Now, because it's owned uh, and operated by the, the Muslim people now, they have closed that gate up recognizing that if the Messiah is to come, he would probably show up through that gate again as, it was, uh, as the, the rabbis had taught. And they have also, right here, this, you can't see it really very well right here, but that is a cemetery. So not only do you have that gate shut, but if the Muslims in their strategy are right and the Messiah does show up and has to cross through that graveyard, what happens to the Messiah? He becomes unclean, and therefore he cannot do anything that the Messiah is supposed to do. So wherever you go in Israel, you find these little games like this being played between the Muslim people and the Jewish people. This is, uh, this is the bridge. This is actually the, the, the Wailing Wall. This is the Western Wall right here, and this is the bridge 
out of, of, out of which you come off, the, uh, come off of the main sidewalk and you go into that bridge or that walkway, and that's where you enter into the Temple Mount itself. And upon com- coming through that, that particular gate into the temple area, uh, this is one of the first sites you see. This is not far from the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and these are, are hired hecklers. Uh, one of the things that has really changed over the years is, is the, uh, the, the scrutiny that people go under as they go up onto the temple platform. Uh, Fifteen years ago, you could basically go up there and you, you really kind of had the run of the place as long as you weren't doing anything that was very, very suspicious. But if you go up now and you even look like you might be offering a, a non-Islamic prayer on the Temple Mount, these ladies have been hired to come over and heckle you until you stop. Uh, another one of the, the little gamesmanship, uh, one of the things that goes on between the Jewish people and the, uh, and the, and the Muslim people in the Holy Land these days. This is the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, Fifteen years ago, uh, we were able to go into this mosque. Um, it is the second largest mosque in the world. This is the Dome of the Rock. These two places are very, very significant in, in uh, the Islamic faith. Al-Aqsa means the faraway place in Arabic. And the Dome of the Rock is built on a place very sacred to the Muslim people because of uh, what Muhammad experienced with God. There is in the Quran uh, a chapter that's entitled something along the lines of uh, the, the night vision or the night journey of Muhammad. And from Mecca, he takes uh, his Pegasus-type horse and flies from Mecca to the Al-Aqsa, the faraway place, which happens to be the place where in the Islamic faith is where he landed on that horse. From that horse, he walked about 100 yards or so, probably not quite that far, maybe more like 75 yards, to the place where the Dome of the Rock is located. From that place where there's a piece of Mount Moriah that you can still see, 15 years ago you were allowed to go into the Dome of the Rock even if you were not uh, a Muslim, which we were able to do both times that, uh, that we traveled in the 90s to, to the Holy Land. And there is, you can see, part of the original Mount Moriah still there, uh, and it's encapsulated inside of this Dome of the Rock. From that point on Mount Moriah, on, at where this, this dome is covering it, Muhammad was taken up to God, and they had a debate over how many times the people of the Islamic faith were to pray each day. Uh, God wanted 50 prayers a day. Muhammad got him down to five. And, uh, and then he came back down and, and spread the news. But that is, you know, that's, that's really part of the significance of the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. At one point, the Al-Aqsa that pertained to that story was another place. Uh, for about the past uh, 75, years ago, or 75 years or so, the Al-Aqsa has been this mosque and the faraway place has been this place in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount of the Jews. Here's a, here's a better picture of uh, a close-up picture of the, of the Dome of the Rock. It's a very, very, I think it's a very beautiful building. Uh, a lot of mosaic, a lot of, obviously, a lot of intricate mosaic work has gone into it. It's a beautiful building. And in, in the mind of, of the Muslims, it's, it was built on the place where Solomon's temple was located. I disagree with that. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But that's why, why it's located in the center of the temple platform today. This is a place you can see uh, chairs, concrete chairs, and this is water with a fountain, and here are spigots, and before the men will go into the pray, to pray in the mosque, 
they, they take their shoes off and they go through kind of a cleansing ritual. And, and at that point, they're ritually clean and have clean, cleansed themselves physically. And they go into the mosque for uh, their daily prayers. Now, when we think about the temples of Israel, that's, uh, that's what's happening today with the Dome of the Rock and the, and the mosque. When we think about the ancient history of Israel, there are basically three temples. The first one, David, at the end of his life, wanted to put it together. He came up with the plans. He, 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 he felt terrible that he was living in this palace, but you know, God had sort of this, this temporary place to live in the tabernacle. And there was something a, a, a little cathartic about wanting to build this place, this very special place, no place like it on, on planet Earth, where the people of God, Israel, could go and meet God and worship God. And he did not want to be living in this palace while God was in you know, this, this, this temporary tent. And so God tells him, he says, you, it was right in your heart to think this and to want this, but you're a man of blood and it's going to be a man of peace that's going to put this temple together for me. Your son is going to build it. And his son by the name of Shlomo, or how we say it in English is Solomon, is that son of peace or that son of his, of, of his father's will puts together the temple. And the first temple is known as Solomon's temple. If you read anything about the, um, in the theology of the Old Testament or you read about the temples, you'll hear about a, um, uh, the first temple and the second temple periods. There were three temples. The second one was built by Zerubbabel during the, 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 the repatriation of the land and they're building the wall around Jerusalem. They also rebuild the temple, but the temple is such a poor reflection of that original temple that Solomon had built that had been had been uh, had been torn down by by the Babylonians that the old people the really really old people who had seen that original temple 70 years prior wept when they saw Zerubbabel's temple because it was nowhere near the beauty of Solomon's temple with that in mind the Jewish people think of and and the biblical scholars think of the first temple period as being Solomon's temple the second temple period is the one that belongs to Herod. That, that middle Zerubbabel temple, it served its need, but it, it's not considered to be worthy of its own period. It's part of Solomon or that first temple period. The second is Herod the Great. And jo as Josephus tells it, uh, you know, Herod, Herod is a great builder, wanted to, to, to be uh, in favor with the Jewish people who did not consider him to be completely Jewish. He had some Edomite blood in him. They considered him not to be fully Jewish. There was always going to be some, some distance between Herod and, and the Jewish leadership, mainly because Herod is trying to build everything from the ground up, and from time to time he would take money where he wasn't supposed to take money from, from the temple. And so when he said that he wanted to rebuild Zerubbabel's temple into something great, the Jewish leaders of the Sanhedrin in particular are, are, are really concerned that he's just going to tear it down and he's not going to build it up because that money's going to be diverted elsewhere. And the way that Josephus tells us tells it is that for them to allow him to dismantle Zerubbabel's temple he basically had to prefab his temple or at least the materials for it so that they could see it before they would allow him to tear it down and as you know it took many many decades to build uh, uh, Herod the Great's temple it was an absolute 
masterpiece. It was an architectural jewel. It was a beautiful, beautiful building. Uh, the rabbis, and, and obviously they're going to be prejudiced towards this, but they said, if you've never seen Jerusalem with the temple in the sun and its golden hue and the stone and limestone and all that, then you've never really, you don't really know what a beautiful building looks like. And so we have Solomon's temple, we have Zerubbabel's temple that was built during that repatriation of the land after the captivities, and then you have Herod the Great. And as you know, Herod the Great died before he actually saw the fruition of that, that project with the temple in Israel. This is a, a model. When we go to Israel, I always tell the, 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 the guys that are leading the trip, when you get to Jerusalem, this is where you need to go first before you do anything else. And unfortunately, they don't do it until the end of the trip, and everybody says, wow, we should have had this first in order to have perspective. This is a scale model of first century Jerusalem. This is a scale model from valley to buildings to roads to hills to, to, uh, to the way the walls were situated uh, in the first century. Now, there are a few mistakes in it that have been discovered through, through space and time. But basically, this is what Jerusalem will look like during the time of Jesus. So to, to give us some perspective before we move on, this is the south, this is the north, and obviously this is the east, this is the west. You have the Kidron Valley here. On the other side of this valley, you have the Mount of Olives and Bethany and uh, the travelers would always come over the Mount of Olives and they would see Jerusalem and they would see the, uh, the Temple Mount and their hearts would soar with joy. They would cross the bridge and they would enter into any number of the gates on the eastern side of Jerusalem. Right there in the middle of the eastern wall, you have the Temple. You have uh, Solomon's portico down here. Um, you have the, the Holdegates right there, even though they have two doubles. It was actually a triple and a double. Some of the mistakes that were made, and not one of the reasons why they know that these are not accurate today, even though the scale is right, is that prior to 1968, there was dirt up to about right here. And it's been since 68 that, uh, that the ex excavations have come and really have uncovered this area right here, discovered the, uh, the Holdegates, discovered the, the steps going up, discovered the mikvah baths, all of these kinds of things. This right here is known as the Ophel, the city, the original city of David. David's palace has been discovered right here. Uh, the, uh, the, the great homes of his mighty men have been discovered in this area. And the original city of David was this peninsula that came down like this with David's palace probably being up here towards the north. In fact, David's palace is a very, very recent discovery and they have found some of the remains of that palace that they believe belong to David. This right here is the Hinnom Valley. The Dung Gate would allow you to, to, to come down through here to, to get rid of the refuse. The... Um, the Tyropian Valley is this right here. It goes in through like this. And then right here you have the Fortress Antonia. In this picture it's kind of faded out a little bit. But the Roman Fortress, Fortress Antonia, was located right here. And as you can see, and this is accurate, the towers were high enough where they were able to look down into what was happening on that temple platform. There were the three great festivals that were talked about in the Old Testament where people would make pilgrimages to Israel. And, there, you know, the day of Passover and the, the, um, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And 
Whenever the Jewish people got together, there was an expectation, especially in those later years leading up to the time of Jesus, there was an expectation that the Messiah would show up at one of those three festivals. And so there was always this heightened expectation. People were a little bit on edge. They were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for Rome. And every time they went to the temple, they saw, they saw the, the reminder that Rome was in control when they looked up and saw those towers. And so there was always kind of this, 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 this rebellious... Uh, tendency and, and feeling that began to foam a little bit down below the surface a little bit and Rome knew it and so there was always these eyes looking down into the Temple Mount to see what was happening because the one thing that you would not mess with is the Roman peace. If you rebelled, if you fought that peace, if you disrupted that peace, you were going to pay as we learned last week with Masada. This, uh, and, and we'll move on here really quickly, this right here is known as the Western Hills. It's, uh, you know, here's the eastern side. This hill right here is known as the Western Hill. What's important about that is that the Jews from those ten tribes that were able to escape before the Assyrians came down and carried those, those ten tribes into captivity and for all intent and purposes disappeared, the ones that were wealthy enough that were able to get down into Jerusalem, they settled on this hill right here right in there. Now, one of the things, and, and, and as we begin to talk about the Garden of Gethsemane and the Mount of Olives and the, the, the week of Jesus' passion, the crucifixion and the resurrection in the next two weeks, one of the things I want you to remember is that here is the Kidron Valley with the Mount of Olives on the other side where Gethsemane is located. When Jesus is arrested by the Jews, he is brought to the house of Caiaphas, which is located up here on the western hills. From there, from Caiaphas' house, after he's been tried and found guilty, they take him down, and that road still exists to this day, part of the first century paving stone still exists to this day. They brought him down. There we go. And along the Tyropian Valley right here, which, by the way, this was the marketplace. This is where all the people met to do commerce. And they took him over here to the fortress Antonia. And from the fortress Antonia, they took him up here to Herod's palace. If this is indeed where Herod was living, there's also some thought that maybe Pontius Pilate had taken his house over. But the praetorium was right here. They took him to wherever Herod was staying at the time. If it's the palace, it's up along this western wall here. They brought him back, and then they let him out of the gates right here, and he was crucified outside the city. This is, uh, this is looking from the center of the temple platform towards the area where the Fortress Antonia would have been located. So this is actually, when you've got the big square walled-in area where the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque is located, you look to the north, this area right here is where the Fortress Antonia would have been located. This is a close-up of the Golden Gate. This gate goes back to the time of Jesus. And during the time of Jesus, it was a major gate. It has been filled in. Since the time of Jesus, there have been the Crusades. It's belonged to Crusaders. It has belonged to the Muslims. It's gone back to the Crusaders. And during this period of time, you know, a lot of things have been deconstructed. There's been a lot of things that have been filled in. And this would have been the place where Jesus, through these gates right here, the place where Jesus would have entered into the, the temple area and would have been recognized as the Messiah. Now what's interesting here is as you look straight on to the Golden Gate here, you see that, it's, that we're, not, we're not lined up with the Dome of the Rock. 
There is a passage in Talmud that says that when you're in the Holy of Holies, you can look through the holy place, and from the holy place, look through the Golden Gate. It's a straight line. Now, if you look at the Temple Mount, it is a rectangle. Possibly it was a square at one time, but Herod, needing to make sure that he could get enough people up on the Temple Mount, uh, wanted to expand it. He could get more taxes that way. There could be more, comp- you know, there's just a lot of, it would be great for the income. It would, it would just be better for, for Herod to expand it. He could not expand it to the north because they were right up against the, um, the Fortress Antonia. They couldn't expand to the east because then they would, have to go into, they would go into the Kidron Valley. They couldn't expand to the west because of the Tyropian Valley. The only way that he could expand was to go south. And so even though the Dome of the Rock is in the center of the present temple platform, I believe that the, the temple itself was actually located a little bit north of the temple, uh, or excuse me, the Dome of the Rock. Uh, this is what it looks from the inside. That, that is the, uh, the Golden Gate from inside the Temple Mount. This right here, this little minaret right here, is probably the place where the original temple was located. And underneath that minaret called uh, the, 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 the Temple of the Spirits, there are these stones right here that go all the way back to the first century and possibly are part of the paving stones for the, uh, for the temple itself, uh, Herod's Temple. This is, uh, this is looking from that area across the Kidron Valley and the, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane is in this, this area back in here. The most famous part of the temple platform that exists today for the Jewish people is the Western Wall. The Western Wall is considered to be one of the most sacred because it is the closest part of the original wall that you can get to where the Holy of Holies was located. It's also the place where you can, you can enter into the Western Wall tunnels, which means that you can actually, and, I, and I've done this, you can actually go underneath the, the temple platform itself and walk around. It's kind of like Disney, Disneyland. You know, everything kind of ugly happens underground at Disneyland, right? It's the same here. You know, the, clean, the cleansing of a, the clothing of the priest because of all the blood from the sacrifices. You had an infirmary because the priest had to eat all that meat. I mean, all of that stuff was taking place underneath the temple itself. But this is the, uh, this is the famous Western Wall. Uh, there is a dividing line right here. These are the women, and the men are over here. doesn't matter if you're Protestant, Catholic, whatever. You know, if, if you're going to the Western Wall, you have to cover your head. Now, it can be a, 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 you know, a Dallas Cowboy baseball cap, or if for those that don't have anything, they have a yarmulke for you to wear. And here's a better picture of it. Women down here. The men here. All of them, you can see they're wearing their prayer shawls. The tallit. One of my favorite, maybe my second favorite picture, is uh, the three of us, uh, Jordan and myself and, and Wayne Rushing, in front of the... Uh, of the of the uh, the western wall or the wailing wall, I love that picture. This is the Tyropian Valley. Uh, this is along the eastern part of that temple area, or excuse me, the western part of that temple area in the Tyropian Valley. Uh, you can't see in this picture, but they're actually filming a movie right here. These are some guys. It's really kind of 
I mean, these guys kind of look like uh, hippies, but they're also dressed like soldiers. So it's not a very realistic movie of uh, some of the, the uh, independence war movies that Israel makes about its own history. This, is, uh, this right here is the southwest corner of the temple area. And where we were just now with the Tyropian Valley is if you go straight down this wall, you go way down, and that's where we were located. This is known as Robinson's Arch. It's no longer, you know, um, as you can see, it's no longer an arch. But it, at, during the time of Herod, you could there was there was a uh, there was an exit and an entrance right here, and you would go across the Tyropian Valley, and then you would come down into you know the sidewalks where all the shopkeepers were. The interesting thing here that I wanted to. Uh, to to, to talk to you about just for a second is this right here is the highest point in the temple area there are two words for temple one means the temple itself where the sacrifices take place the other is a more generic word that means the area now when jesus is tempted by satan in matthew chapter 4 one of the things that he is tempted with is to throw himself off of the temple there's a lot a lot of debate that where that temptation took place was right here the reason for it is that uh, there probably was not nearly as many people around the temple, the temple itself, inside of, you know, inside of all of those gates, for there to be a lot of people to see him toss himself off of the, the temple itself where the sacrifices took place and, and to be lifted up by the angels. Where it makes more sense is that it would happen here, the highest place. That drop is huge all the way down into that valley. At the same time, this is where all the commerce was taking place. This is where all of the, the businesses were. This is where, I mean, there were just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people every day walking up and down this, this, this corridor, this road right here, and going into the shops. The, the, the shops themselves, you can see the places where they were located. And many of the scholars today believe that this is actually the place where Satan tempted Jesus to throw himself off of the temple. But he, uh, he would not do it. These are pictures of the mikvah baths that are on the south side of, uh, of, of uh, the Temple Mount itself. Here's an individual one. Basically, you would go down, you would strip off all of your clothes in a private place and go down into this mikvah, very, very small, uh, not nearly big enough for, for two or three people like we normally have in America, baptistries, but you would go down and this would be a place where you would go into the water and, and baptize yourself and come out. And that's what an ancient one looked like and possibly one that was used on Pentecost. Here is a close-up of that double, double hold -a gate. You can see the arch right here that comes down. And here is the, uh, the opening where when people were leaving the temple itself, they would come down through those double gates. Here's the triple. And this right here is a Herod stone. Uh, you know, it all, you know when you, you're far away, all of these stones look alike. But when you get close up, you see that, that they're different. And you have a base layer that we call the Herod stones. And then above that, you have all kinds of little rocks that, and stones that are, and bricks that are put into place that go all the way up to what the present temple uh, wall looks like. But what makes these special is that they have this recess right here. And you can see it there. And you can see it there. And you can see it there on that stone. Herod the Great was the only one who milled his stones that way. 
the only one who milled his stones where there was a recessed fringe going all the way around them. And as you can see, there's a lot of precision with uh, the masonry work here. I mean, you can't even get a knife blade between those stones. But what is really cool about knowing that fact about these stones is this picture right here. We are standing, this is uh, Jordan and Wayne and myself, we are standing just to the left of the triple holdigates where the people would go up into the temple area through this area right here that's been blocked off. What we're touching right here, right next to the entrance, right here, is a Herod stone. That is a first century stone that was there during the time of Jesus. That is, X marks the spot. That is a stone that Jesus' hand would have brushed against as he was walking down the sidewalk and then turning left. And on the other side, you have the same stones turning right to go up into that triple gate and to go there. And it, that's my favorite picture of the entire trip is for the three of us to be touching this, uh, this, this, this gigantic stone that was milled and put in place, a place to worship God, during the time that our Savior, our Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, lived on the earth and, and died for us, that stone was there when he lived. And, you know, it, it, it got me to thinking about, uh, you know, the greatness of our faith. You know, one of the things that uh, you get sort of used to when you've been in, in ministry, the, the number of years that... I have, and you know Richard and Douglas and Barry, is that you've heard every excuse in the book where it comes to not worshiping God. My favorite all time was uh, talking to a guy that was sort of um, uh, slip sliding away, and we'd gone to talk to him. He said, "You know, the sign of this is that you know you, we just don't ever see you at worship." And he said, "I know, I know, I know," and but it's the only day I can go to the airport to shop, and it was his excuse. But over the years, what, one of the things I've learned is that, you know, I could come up with some kind of a, of a reason or some kind of a, an, an answer in response to that. But what you discover is that there are three more that pop up in its place. And so while you still encourage people to worship and while you still preach and you teach people what it means to worship and how to worship and, and, and what happens when you worship, a lot of times the only thing you can do is sort of just go home and pray for that person to one day that God will do something in their heart. They'll read the Word. Somebody will say something. That will, they'll just get it. And they'll understand what worship is all about. That, that psalm that, that Elliot uh, read for us was a song that the, uh, the Israelites would sing as they would, in mass, in these, these groups, they would travel from, from all over to worship God in, in Jerusalem. And they would sing these songs um, about repentance, and they would sing songs about the greatness of God. And as they would walk and as they would get ready to worship God, the day of uh, Passover or the day of atonement, they were preparing their hearts to worship God. And when they got there, for them, the fact that Jerusalem was geography, the fact that, that Jerusalem was actually a city was sort of incidental to the fact that Jerusalem was the place where they would go and meet God. And in the, the things that they would do in their worship, they would be reminded of three foundational, completely important, profound foundational truths. That God had created them, 
that God had redeemed them, and that God had provided for them. And one of the things that you, you, you see when you go down these steps where all those mikvahs are and you have the Haldegate going up and the Haldegate's coming down is that the, stair, the, the stairs themselves are not uniform. And the reason for that is that it was just another reminder that you just didn't run up to God as if, you know, you, you, know, they, you, know, you were his equal. No, you had to think about the steps that you were taking or you would fall. You had to think about the, the ununiformness of those steps as you were going up to worship God and you would go slow to you and you had to think about it and you had to realize, I am going up to worship God. And I, I think of a, a moment 15 years ago where we were actually in those, those tunnels underneath the Temple Mound and, and uh, we, you know, we're you know, passageways are not uniform. They're, you know, you're having to fight your way through these small places. And if you have claust- you know, claustrophobia issues, you don't want to go in there. But then you, you, you walk into a room that's probably about half the size of this stage up here. And there's a little sign up in the corner that says, according to this reading in Talmud, you are directly below the Holy of Holies. And there's this moment where you realize that God himself in his glory, his Shekinah, his kavod, his heaviness of glory. He showed up where human beings could see it in a way that made them fall down on their face and reminded them of who they were and who God is. And, uh, you know, there, there was, that was part of what Jerusalem was about. Jerusalem was a city. It was a place where commerce took place. It was a place of great architecture. But more than any place, anything else, it was a place in which the people of God were reminded of the importance of worshiping God. And when that worship was done right, it didn't satisfy them. But it whetted their appetite to be more and more in His presence. And I, and I think that even though we don't even live, you know, a day's drive from a place like this. It, it's a great reminder for us to never take for granted the privilege and the opportunity that we have, not just on Sundays in corporate worship, but the opportunities that we have every day in the way that we live our life. How do we structure our life the way that it was done in ancient Israel? And maybe not in precisely the same details, but do we structure our life like they do where, where we have these reminders of the greatness of God and, and the opportunities for worship and what worship means when we declare that God is the supreme value of the universe rather than coming in in a culture like ours that's a consumer culture and a consumer society and waiting for worship to happen to us. And every time I I think about those Old Testament scriptures and this particular psalm that talks about Jerusalem, can't wait for my feet to be in your gates. I can't wait to be in that place where the incense is burned and worship takes place because I'm reminded of who I am and I'm reminded of the structures of life that God gives me in order to remember that I'm to love God with all my heart and with all my soul and strength and mind, all my thoughts, and I'm to love people. A second is like it, to love people. We're going to have an opportunity to worship right now.
Brandon's going to lead us in a song. We'll have a couple of our shepherds down here at the front. But this is a time for us to take advantage of a moment in our day on the first day of the week where we recognize, not by ourselves and not in private, but we recognize with a group of like-minded people that we're not alone in the universe, that there is a God who created us and a God who redeemed us and a God who provides for us every day. Let's stand and let's sing. My only hope.